0: Hey there, this is Brent. And this is Amanda. No, wait, this is future Brent. We got a little long-winded in this episode, so it's split in two. Join us now for the second part of Gene Wolfe's From the Cradle. One of the things that I found interesting here is that he calls his teacher. Yes. And he's asking... Have I seen you any place? I don't know. Have you? And then he replies back, I don't know either, Michael admitted. His teacher, because I, I had assumed he would like gone home and called her. Yes. And like on a, on a phone or right. a video screen. And, and she says, I'm a simulation, Mick. There was a real teacher once, a very good teacher who looked about like this.
1: Many of my programs and subroutines are based upon her. So is my face.
0: Yeah, another one of those turns that Wolf often does, where we think something is imbued with personhood, where we normally wouldn't like as just regular people making judgment calls. We we wouldn't be like, oh, well, that's a person. But up until this point, till where his teacher says, "Well, I'm I'm actually an AI." Yes, like he he's treated her as the, though she were a person. as though she were a person. yeah i haven't
1: i seen you any place. yeah. yeah and i mean shades here of fifth head and mm-hmm. monsieur emilion yeah the the tutor slash father slash grandfather slash anyway never mind I'm not going <laughs> to get derailed there. yeah so he asks her what's an incunabulum and then we get the in universe definition which is a book printed in the second millennium.
0: So we're at this point, we're accruing more details, more details that we are further in the future than maybe we had initially thought with the setting being a bookstore.
1: Right. Yeah. And so Michael's working in the bookstore and then RT Hurd comes in and he wants to make an offer on the book.
0: And he does.
1: Yes. Which means that we get to see... Michael takes the book out of the motion alarmed case and then Hurd gets to look at it, touch it, and then make a offer on it using a kneeboard keyboard Yeah, and signal signing it.
0: There we go. Like, who, what's, a, what's a kneeboard keyboard? That, that's Don't just, know. Yeah. The only thing I can imagine is Wolf was thinking of a... Like something you could tap at your side. So you weren't, because with smartwatches, you know, it's pretty clear when you're not paying attention to the right. But I'm imagining something with like a tactile feedback where they're
1: right, stationed on the side of the leg or something. Yeah. Which may be about that.
0: Yeah. I may be incorrect. I guess my point is, is it's not a technology that we have now. Yes. So we are once again, now we're even further removed.
1: Definitely. And then, so Herd makes the offer, Michael locks it back up, and he realizes it's open to a new page, um, which he must have done himself, and so he has <laughs> another story to read.
0: Yeah. And I, I love I this gimmick of we're reading page by page on something that we're interested in, but we our point of view character doesn't have the ability just to, to read it at his own leisure he's he's got a he's sneaking out on the road and looking in through the glass
1: right right yeah so here we get the tale of prince know nothing and this one is much shorter yeah so it's not even what probably not even two pages in in the story
0: yeah so this one um there lived a certain prince who did not know he was a prince
1: right so he's the long descendant of of some glorious king, renowned for courage and wisdom throughout the world. So Charlemagne, right?
0: Yeah, I assumed. That's that's what I assumed.
1: And then he, so he doesn't know he's a prince. He's called Prince Know-Nothing in the story. Mm -hmm. And then he has a kind of wisdom. He's wiser than the other boys, but at his age, wisdom consists largely in honoring one's parents and careful listening to the counsel of those older than oneself.
0: Mm-hmm. Thus
1: his wisdom, though it made him well-liked and kept him from harm in a hundred ways, brought him only mockery when it became apparent. I like that.
0: Yes, that was very... And then the uh, the boasts were louder because it was amongst boys. It's the boasting. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. I love that line too. And Never just having
1: that. been a teenage boy, I can't tell you from experience, but...
0: I'm, Teenage boys are pretty stupid. Yeah, I've heard. And, and loud. <laughs> yes. So there's much chest beating and no actual excellent work. <laughs> yeah,
1: nobody's getting anything accomplished. They're just talking about what they would do. Yeah. So then he is hearing a story in class. Once upon a time, said his teacher, there was a king who had but a single child, the princess, and 12 golden plates. They were very beautiful, with knights and dragons and elves around their borders. What is a princess, asked Prince Know-Nothing, and the other children all laughed.
0: But then the uh, teacher...
1: She's a good teacher.
0: She is a good teacher. So if everyone else knows, everyone else can tell you. And so she starts picking out people...
1: Yeah, if you're going to laugh at him for not knowing it, you're going to have to define it for him.
0: Yeah, and I, I love this. It's a girl that's very pretty on Halloween and has a pretty <laughs> white dress know. with the big skirt. Oh, Explained the girl with the pink hair ribbon. Yeah, their teacher agreed that this was a good definition. But, but she not
1: was... rigorous enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So she asked the smartest boy in the whole class to tell Prince No-Nothing what a princess was too. It's the one the nightmares. the smartest boy in the whole classroom said at once. That's a good definition, too, the teacher agreed. But princesses don't always marry knights. Sometimes they marry princes.
1: And that's the end of the page. That is. And it's locked away so we don't get to hear the rest of the story.
0: Yep. But we should be thinking about we have a character who does not realize that they're a prince. And in the story within the story, princesses are the ones that marry princes.
1: Yes. Interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: I feel like we have a, a wedding coming up. What? No. So Herd's offer has been refused, and we only know this because the book remains in the window. And then years go by. So we have a nice little fade scene here where time passes. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's time for Michael to do inventory. And it's it you know, time has passed, so now he's he's the one doing inventory. Yeah,
0: so we get the idea that Mr. Brown is either retired or passed away. Right. We we don't really know. Michael's in charge. Michael's in charge.
1: And nobody likes to do inventory, but it's much harder when your books don't have U A I S B N numbers.
0: <laughs> I I have no clue.
1: Well, ISBN, International Standard Book Number, uh-huh. Which is this is one of those ATM machine moments where the N is for number and and we still say numbers. Yep. Um, so universal universally applicable international universe a international. <laughs> I don't know.
0: Oh, so you're postulating there's a multiverse. Here. I'm
1: postulating a multiverse. I think Wolf would be okay with it. Yeah. I don't think he believes there's a multiverse though. That's okay. In the Wolf Extended Universe, people who believe in multiverses can exist.
0: (laughs) Uh, One thing to call out there, he considers listing it by the title. Yes. One thing that we have not got so far is the title of this book.
1: No, we haven't. So he considers listing it by the title, but doesn't tell us the title.
0: Yeah, because he kind of writes it off as, ah, there's probably half a dozen books with a single title.
1: Which is often the case. And mm. makes interesting work of searching for things. Yeah, yeah. And so while he's doing inventory, a young woman with bright blue eyes comes in, and she thinks that they have a lot more books in here than most bookstores. Which is one another one of our chronology culture details because uh, they have so many books because they want to have printed books on hand because people are more interested in reading them if they can handle them and look at them. Yeah. So they don't keep the bestsellers printed. They print those up when people ask for them.
0: He identifies bestsellers as ephemera.
1: I like it, and
0: i I laughed out loud when I read that line.
1: Well, ephemera, um, I don't know. Maybe all of our listeners are familiar, but that's another bookstore bit of terminology, which is the name for those tickets and postcards and um maps and, um, you know, Playbills and and other little bits and pieces of printed paper Mm -hmm. that are not as durable as books, but tend to accumulate around the edges of a bookstore anyway. And they're often very collectible. Um, People will be very interested in acquiring the paper pieces that are associated with a historical event or with literary stuff.
0: Also, once again, though, you you may have those for a long time before the right collector comes
1: in. Oh my goodness, so much so. Because nobody comes in looking for ephemera by title. Mm-hmm. You look through ephemera trying to find something that's connected to something mm-hmm. you're interested in. Yeah.
0: Just going up a, a few lines, something I wanted to point out. The glass filters out the ultraviolet. Yeah. I love the fact that we'll put that in there because I hate it when my books get faded. Yes. Or I buy books from a used bookstore that have been faded. Faded because they've been in the sun for a long period of time.
1: Right. And any light is damaging to books, any quantity. But when you have, especially when a bookstore has a window and they put nice books in the window, mm-hmm. it's just destroying their integrity.
0: Which is sad, but.
1: Yeah. It's also, that's life. It is. Um, quote at the end, will Call back to this moment, so prepare yourself now. Oh, okay. But you know, the spine fading on a book is just a reminder that you two will die one day.
0: Hmm. Ow! <laughs> no, I I absolutely agree with that. Yes, memento mori. You should, <laughs> more. You should re- remember that. We have the transition from Michael to, or from Mister Brown to Michael, but yes. then we also get the indication here. He says, "I should get a cat." He thought we used to have a cat. A lot of stores have cats. So Epi is dead now too.
1: Which makes sense because cats may have nine lives, but their total lifespan is not the human one. Yeah. And this is another great, I mean, it's just, it's bookstore detail. Most bookstores have a cat. <laughs> Some of them have too many, and yeah. the cat smell is oppressive, but most bookstores have a cat.
0: Mm-hmm. And then uh, we get, an inventory entry here. He says, he, he titles it Brown's book, Wonders Of. That's what he entered it as. That's not the actual name for it.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't seem a logical name for it because mm-hmm. it isn't Mr. Brown's book. And, you know, maybe Wonders Of is a fragment of the title, but we don't know.
0: Yeah. So, and then after he leaves for the night, he could get a cat, a nice cat with white paws and an interesting name. But a cat would not be enough either. Yeah. Foreshadowing possibly.
1: Dun, dun, dun.
0: Yeah. So he, well, before I get there, so there's a bus that floats by. Floats. Yep. Yes. So once again.
1: He misses the bus mm -hmm. that's floating by. So that means he's going to have to wait for the next one.
0: Yeah. So he's inspecting his windows. Yes. And he has a book in there, The Race for Saturn's Moons. He wants to get rid of that because it's no longer selling and it should be regulated to the shelf and replaced. And then there's perhaps with (laughs) fear of the future or the fall of the republic. Yes. So I I don't know which republic that's referring to.
1: Neither do I. But here we go. We are in another story. Tale of the Boy in the Bookshop. Hmm. So it's been turned to a new page and now it's a third story. And this one is about a boy in a bookstore within the story about a boy in a bookstore.
0: Interesting. I wonder where Wolf is going with this.
1: No idea. But the boy was called wished for.
0: (laughs) He had been born late in his parents' lives, after many years in which they had prayed devoutly for a son.
1: Yes, they did. If only all such prayers were answered. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) that was a little biographical snark. There's context. We're not getting into it.
0: We ain't got time. Um there's a interesting note in here where the father works on amendment programs. yes. so this is gonna come up a little bit later in this story. but the teacher who's an AI and has subroutines, the father, because I had assumed we were dropped into a you know Arabian Nights type story, right. But he's actually a programmer. Yes. And he works on, it it seems like he works on the AI because he works on subroutines and that type of stuff. So he
1: he gives, he's given his life to it. Yeah. So they have this longed for son and then mom dies because Mm -hmm. of course, and the father decides to give his son as a gift to Allah because he is a gift from Allah. Mm -hmm. And so he sends him away.
0: Yeah. After questioning the boy, what is the best type of gift? And the boy answers that mere mortals, alas, are never pure of heart. So the only way to give Allah a gift is to give back a gift that Allah gave.
1: It's very shades of Abraham and Isaac and sacrificing my son on a mountaintop.
0: So I do think that this is an interesting question, and I want to come back to this when we get to the end. Okay. Because one of the questions I have is, how does this book give? Okay. So there's a um, section here where he's going off to a school and yes. this uh, educational institution, the...
1: Madrasa of Sultan Hassan.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so that, that's an actual educational institution in Egypt. And it's been there for centuries. In this future world where this peasant is an AI programmer yes, with a son who, whom he sends off to school. This
1: school still survives.
0: This school still survives. He's going to come seven years later. Yes. And then he's, he's like, as I labor at my keyboard for my belly must be fed. I, I just, I underlined that there because I was like, oh, wow. Okay. As someone
1: who labors at his keyboard that his belly might be fed. Yeah. Yes.
0: It was... That was one of those uh, moments where I was like, oh, I could... now, we're, now we have these, these AI that are teaching rich first world children. Yes. And, it's, and they're being maintained and the subroutines are being uh, created and modified right. off the backs of these peasants in the third world. This is a theme that comes up a lot in Wolf where not only do we get to see the wonders of the world but he also kind of points out that there are disparities and even in wonderful worlds there are people who aren't free right this guy's working long hours
1: right just to try and and support himself at laborious intensive repetitive kind of work
0: to the point he's working such long hours that he forgets how many years he was working. So his neighbor right. has a pickup. It's not a pickup, what it pick truck.
1: Named Rattler.
0: Maybe. Okay. But uh his neighbor's like, Well, no, my uh pick was... truck
1: that is old shone like a jewel when thy son left us.
0: Yeah. So yeah. he's worked so hard. Yeah. That uh he's forgot how much time has passed. So
1: Right. No, it's, it's I don't know. I wanna continue with the story, but I also wanted to stop and note that our three stories are so I I said this is shades of of Abraham and Isaac with the son being sent off as mm-hmm. a gift. It's also a little bit of, you know, Samuel yeah. um being being sent to the temple. Mm-hmm. But each of our stories then connects us to Egypt specifically between the Sphinx. Yeah. I I mean, I think that there's a story called Prince of Egypt might have something to do with what? about a prince who <laughs> Who doesn't know he's a prince? Or, who might have even or,
0: seen a burning
1: bush? Might have seen a burning bush, and mm. so just picking up on our our threads here. It's been more than seven years, and he, you know, he just has become a laboring machine.
0: Yeah, and there's a spot in here where I he went out and watched the road because he was worried that his son would come back and not be able to do the hard work. Yes, and on such days he watched the road for hours, and so I just. We kind of get like an almost reverse prodigal son right story parable part yes. there. So,
1: so then he travels to go find the son.
0: He does, and one thing I wanted to call out is oh, he yes. the coins that he uses here. These are these the are the millipastors. Yeah, the millipastors. M- millipastors. The, yeah, they are small, thin coins. They are very um, like you would think they were foil if you saw them. Oh, and okay. these are broken up. Instead of being broken up into hundreds, like our like our cents are, mm-hmm. these are broken up into thousands. And so the fact that he has saved up and he has 15, this is the equivalent of like a penny and a half.
1: Right. Okay.
0: So he's pretty poor.
1: He is. And interesting, when we discussed the dead man, part of the editorial commentary about Gene Wolfe was that he was into yeah. coin collecting. So the numismatic knowledge here is accurate. Yeah. Anyway. He goes to look for his son, going to the madrasa, and everywhere he looks, he doesn't see him.
0: I love this section of the story. Really? Yeah. It's just because I feel like I've read this story before or a similar story somewhere. Oh, interesting. But I couldn't quite place okay. my finger on it because I kind—I was like, oh, his kid's gonna be the wise one that they go and find.
1: Right, but it's not.
0: Yeah. So there. He's
1: running a bookshop.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I do like where he, he sees an old man and he's like, well, I know I have to work. So he's like, grandfather, thou art of years and the box is weighty permit me to assist thee. And so he just kind of ingratiates himself to this man. And then this man starts helping him and he eventually becomes a partner. And then when the old man and his wife die, um, he inherits the bookshop. Right. And here's, an, here's another spot. I put them in their places, the books, as he directed me. And as I labored, he discoursed on their contents. Some came from Baghdad, Okay. Some came from Damascus. Okay. Yes. Some from Frankish lands.
1: Even to the other side of the earth.
0: Even to... And then it's like, and some from the stars of heaven. Uh Uh-huh. So we're kind of in this Arabian Nights where it's like, okay, yeah.
1: Old, old, old. Oh, but the guy's programming things. Oh. Yeah. And they have interstellar literary traditions.
0: Yeah. And it's like, oh, and all were wondrous in my sight. And he saw it. So he bid me to sleep in the shop that night and many a night thereafter.
1: Mm -hmm. So. Well, this may be very futuristic in some sense, but the security system here is very historic.
0: When his father is speaking with the sheik, the sheik asks him why he's here and why hasn't he spoken? He says, oh, Reverend sheik, quoth the old man, which I should kind of want to point out here that the, the Haywood poem.
1: That tone. That's the
0: tone. Yeah. quoth Quoth the man, quoth the woman. So know that I am sorely troubled. I am a simple man. To mere compilers and code to interrupts, subroutines, and iterations has my life been given.
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> yeah. And now I must judge a weighty matter and know not the way. So here he is. He's working on AI. Yes. Which part of me is like, what could be more weighty?
1: Right. You're well, teaching. We're living here in the past where we're under the, don't let them know, but I feel like we're under threat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. We're in a universe where it's just the daily grind. And uh, so the, the sheik asks him to speak.
1: He, he explains that his son disobeyed him.
0: Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's gone and done many great things, like right. owning the shop. And he says, I love him dearly, O Reverend sheik. And no man ever had a better son. Yet he did wrong. And I know not which way to turn. Others had fallen silent to listen Mm -hmm. as the old man spoke. And for a time they discussed the matter. Then came the call to prayer. All prayed. And when the prayer was done, he to whom the old man had spoken declared, This is a troubled matter, O my uncle. Thy son hath transgressed. The old man nodded. And this transgression was against Allah and thee, is it not so? So he nodded. Yeah, and then it's like, well, is it true that he he's, he's yeah
1: he's true of tongue, contrite of heart, a good Muslim? And then yes, he is. So how do we figure this out?
0: Yeah, and so then the sheikh says that they need to go and consult with somebody whom we reckon the wisest of the wise. Yeah, matters of great difficulty are brought to him. Yep. Let us bring thine, thou and I, and they went down one street and up another. And so came to a certain shop, he to whom the old man had spoken entered first, and the old man after him.
1: And behold. Yep. And that's it. And that's it. Yeah.
0: We have, we got to turn the page, but we can't.
1: We can't. But we're hanging out with Michael, and it seemed to Michael that this story had been intended for him from the beginning.
0: Yep. Money had been in short supply, and he was... A member of no prioritized group.
1: Yes, so yeah, he had dropped out of the university to work at the bookshop, and he seems to think that the story is directed at him. And then the next morning, the young woman comes back.
0: My read on this is that she's rather flirty. Um, yeah, she's asking about the uh, the book. Yes. However, she owns she she's the actual owner of the book,
1: right? So she's asking about the book, but she's also asking for coffee. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she wants to sit down and relax and, no, have coffee with me.
0: Yeah. And then she says honey. And he's like, what? No, I'd like some honey. with Uh This whole section reads like a cat toying.
1: A cat, you say? Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. So she seems to be cat-like and toying with the young man. I would the burning say, bush.
0: Yeah, the burning bush.
1: Okay. Yeah, and then she definitely is the one to make the move. Yeah, I mean, he starts flirting back with her. Mm-hmm. And and he he re-narrates the stories that he's read to her. Right. Yes. Um. But then you know I don't want to skip too much, but she's like I haven't either. I mean, I'd like some talking about children, mm-hmm. but I've never been married. I'd like some too, Mick. <laughs> Sorry, was that that a good flirty voice? I I think that'll quite suddenly she kissed his cheek. So she just she's very forward. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but somebody walking up to you and you know kissing your cheek in the middle of the bookstore.
0: No, it's it's a not. bit aggressive. It is. It. I've had it happen in a library. It's not a good thing.
1: Oh, oh dear! It's in a just, library, not a bookstore. Yeah,
0: in a library, not a bookstore. It's just awkward. So,
1: well, I can imagine. So, was this in junior high?
0: No, it would have been high school. Oh, high so. school, all the yeah, way in high so school. It's even okay. worse. So. Okay.
1: Yeah, and then I'm through fooling you. So she's like, "Oh, I'm I'm done toying with you." Mm-hmm. I've been married for fifty years. No, it's really fine. I'm I'm actually young because of the cell therapy. It's okay. And then. I'm Caitlin Higgins, and I own the book. I don't really want to buy it. Oh, and I was your teacher, too.
0: yeah. By the way, call me Kitty meow yes meow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's uh, where it comes around and ends, it's we have because of the cell therapy she's right. she's a young maid, yes, as a well, well.
1: She's not a maid, but she's a young woman.
0: Yeah, a young woman. A healthy young
1: woman. She wants to have children. She couldn't have children for some reason that she doesn't explain with her first husband.
0: Mm -hmm. But then she also is much older and has wisdom and is- And she's terribly rich. And terribly rich. Yeah. So we just took all of Haywood's advice- Yes. And kind of turned it on its head.
1: Yes. But the book also chose him.
0: It did, because the book
1: could have been RT heard, but it wasn't.
0: Yeah. So, and that's one of my. I guess before I go on, do you have any other things you want to talk about on the end here?
1: Um. No, I think I think I'm ready to go ahead and talk about the story as a whole.
0: Okay. Was there anything you want to start with, or you go ahead? Okay, because I had a few kind of larger questions overall. Okay. And going back to so you already went there with the the book chose him. Yes. And so we we get glimpses of that at the beginning where he goes to help her put it up on the counter and it's light for him to put right. it up there. Right. And like I think that's kind of the point where Kitty realizes Okay. That uh
1: She's just gonna have to wait for him to grow up.
0: Yeah. And then there's a but the, then we get the it It's giving him instruction, yes, so in one sense, it this story almost it kind of reminded me of Neil Stevenson's The
1: Diamond Age, yeah., yes, so it's like yes. the young
0: lady's primer, but it it's not exactly that,
1: no, but he also has the AI teacher that is something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we're playing with a variety of threads here,
0: yeah. so. So if we go back to the, uh, how then is the value of a gift to be reckoned? It must be according to the heart of its giver. The most valuable gift is that given with unbound love from a pure heart. Here mortals, alas, are never pure of heart. So part of my, I get one of my questions for you is how does the book give? Like in what manner does it? Or you can pass if you don't like the question.
1: I don't know. I, I kind of feel like you have an answer in mind. And I, I haven't thought of this. So I'm I'm curious what you think. And I I feel like if I just answer off the cuff, I'm going to talk about the gift of stories or something. So.
0: Okay. I was in, I guess, question for you before I go on. Like, okay.
1: Um, A question within the question. Yeah.
0: It, so it didn't. That didn't strike you as a... No. Okay. Maybe I'm over-reading here.
1: Well, so. maybe I'm under-reading. Go for it.
0: Well, one of the things that I had thought about where there was definitely a lot of biblical imagery. And so we get Michael, who's named after... Burning Mike. Bush. Burning yeah. Bush. like, And then we get Allah, and Allah is right. God. So, But we we are in Egypt. And so one of the things I was thinking about is it's like well this book every time he reads it it gives him something that he can reflect upon Mm -hmm. and that can Mm -hmm. provide some sort of wisdom or instruction Mm -hmm. for times ahead Mm -hmm. and so in one sense this is a holy book Mm -hmm. the the number of times that i've seen people or like you know they'll read something out of the bible like in Mm -hmm. the psalms or something and then clearly talking about deer next to the stream but then they're like oh
1: this, this me- means something y- for me
0: yeah and so that multifaceted interpretation but it's it's all true and it's giving good guidance like to me the brown book is a some sort of holy book
1: no that that makes a lot of sense and i think where i went with it um, I didn't think about it in the context of gift as a gift from someone or a gift to someone, but it it's living word. Yeah. So it it's alive and it's the word. And so with the themes of wisdom that it's functioning somehow in that dimension, that it is living and active. I don't know. I don't wanna be I don't wanna be too sacrilegious here, but it it seems to have some kind of dynamic ability.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I'd agree with that. I guess you kind of already called this out. Because one of the other questions I was gonna I had was, who is this prince that does not know that he's a prince? Right. Because we get that Kitty is probably a princess. Right. It doesn't explicitly say in the framing narrative, but the, mm-hmm. but the story within mm-hmm. indicates that. And so I was kind of wondering what your take was on who that might be
1: how michael is a prince?
0: Yes. I yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, and I I feel like this is reductive and probably too too on the nose, but it seemed to me that the invocation, uh, well, I didn't think I was making up the Charlemagne connection, especially when he mentions Frankish lands. Yeah. But I also thought, you know, Michael of God that, you know, it's some sort of universal humans are People are
0: okay, and that's sons of God. Yeah, and that's actually so, where I had landed okay. too, because because it talks about how distant, right. the the members of the royal family were back in right. time, right. And I, as I got thinking about it, it's like, well, if he's like the great, 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 whatever right. grandson, then it's like you have many generations in there,
1: right. That's a mythical theme, you know. This is the gods' descendants of the gods. That's mm-hmm. that's a very common mythical theme in in royalty narratives of all kinds. That, yeah. that our ancestry goes back to the gods. Um. I'm thinking about a rule in Lewis's Till We Have Faces, which is just you know an encapsulation of the, the pattern mm-hmm. in historic myth. And so I thought Charlemagne at first that you know Wolf and I think Wolf is is explicitly referencing that. I mean Charlemagne had a number of children. <laughs> yeah, um, and therefore, if you have European ancestry, you're going all the way back to eight hundred. We all have grandparents in common. yeah. and so so th- that was, yeah, that was a historical connection I made. but I, I also just felt like there's a deliberate invocation of so many biblical themes that you're you're supposed to be thinking, okay,
0: along those lines, did you, and this is a bit of a loaded question because i I saw some people discussing this online that this might be attached to one of his other larger works at all.
1: Oh that it fits into okay. Well, that's not a fair question because um y- you know that I believe that in the wolf extended universe, not as a joke, but that he's writing one he's writing one world.
0: Yes. And I, and I think I agree with you on that. Let me rephrase the question. Okay. Do you think that the Untitled Brown Book Wonders of In this story is the book that Severian is reading from.
1: I hadn't thought of that. Okay, and so therefore I feel um, slow, but uh, that yes, the it's a brown book. Yeah, I mean there are a number of colors that books could be:
0: gray, white. <laughs>
1: Well, at night every book looks great. <laughs> exactly. I,
0: yeah.
1: Um, no, I, I that that connects. Yeah. I, I think that I think that does connect especially with the sense of, you know, early stages of far far future. Yeah. That 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 seems to work.
0: I don't think he necessarily I don't think this was a thread in his mind like, wow, the right. one thing that I didn't do that tied together all my solar myth. I think he had a grin on his face every time that was Well,
1: this and this then connects to the larger point of we agree i think that that wolf is writing in one large connected universe mm-hmm. maybe not always like i don't see him you know that guy the the meme of the guy with the <laughs> strings and the uh-huh. connecting things that he is so fully immersed and this goes back to our comments about card in the meditations on middle earth podcast that he's He's not unconsciously, but maybe occasionally it's more subconscious than conscious. He's connecting things in this way because this is just how the universe looks. Yeah. That there would be a sacred text that responds to the reader, just seems a given of the universe. I mean, it's I'm gonna say this wrong that Tao De Ching. I mean that that it responds to reading, that mm-hmm. that's very much the Christian view of of scripture historically. Yeah. Um And so for Wolf to have a book like this and for it it to be the same book, in a sense, yeah, of course it is.
0: Okay. I didn't know if I was straining interpretation with some of those. I
1: think if you were going to assert that this is the one true reading of this text, then that would probably be a bit of a push, but it's a very plausible connection.
0: I would go further and say that'd just be foolish, but I'm not going (laughs) to assert that any one reading of Wolf's text is the true reading.
1: Well, and that's because... Partly because um, none of us are as smart as he is. Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> not not even you. Uh, but also that anything that means in a living sense is not going to have a singular interpretation. And any, any living meaning is going to have complexity and threads and facets. And so.
0: Yeah. By the fact that it's living, it's interacting and responding to its environment.
1: Right. Like, Wolf didn't sit down in and, 19... And 19- 80 and plan out future short story connections and yet his living imagination would tie these things together
0: i like that interpretation better
1: okay any other big questions um no
0: what do you have for
1: well i didn't have any big questions i just wanted to talk a little bit about just the collection i didn't read the whole thing i just kind of read around in it a little bit Mm -hmm. but i love when I first saw it for sale, I just love the idea of an anthology of stories about bookstores. Yeah. And um, the introduction by the editor. Okay, the editors. Um, Or I'm sorry, the preface by the editor. So not Neil Gaiman's introduction, but he said that he solicited manuscripts and received 400 submissions. Yeah. And he... Just outright rejected stories that just were stories that happened to be set in a bookstore. Mm-hmm. And so I, again, I haven't read the whole collection, so I don't know if it's true of all the stories in there. But this is a story that could have only happened in a bookstore. You can't have these causes and effects in a different context. Yeah. And so I really do like how, how Wolf did that, which is totally unsurprising. He wouldn't just give you some random, you know, speculative fiction story that, and like, oh, by the way, it was in a bookstore.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he's not going through and checking items off a list.
1: Yeah. Th- this is, again, living. Mm-hmm. Um, But I also think that in this case, that the editor of the anthology did a good job of organizing that, his thoughts about that before he started to just be like, oh, I just want bookstore. It just needs to say bookstore. But he had some deep feeling, deep sense of the importance of of the themes and, and the, you know, what it's like in the context of huh. a bookstore. It's
0: almost like you're making a commentary on an, another recently hmm. reviewed anthology. Almost. So I know you said you didn't read all of the other yes. stories in there, but were there any other ones in the collection that
1: There's a really interesting one about a, um, I I can't remember the author, I'll have to look it up, about a terrible, terrible villain who ends up in the bookstore, kind of gets trapped in the bookstore because (laughs) he's seeking an item of great power, Hmm. but instead of going to, instead of ending up in a bookstore like we would think, dusty shelves, piles of books everywhere, and a cranky bookseller mm-hmm. at the counter who knows about the mysterious and powerful book that's buried deep in the collection. It's basically a Barnes and Noble and <laughs> the mysterious object of power is the Biscotti. so oh um
0: okay. I was I, not expecting you to say I, that
1: I know and then he ends up uh you know giving up his quest and because he fails to identify the Biscotti as the the item of power and so he becomes uh, a clerk in the bookstore
0: oh so. Wow, okay.
1: It amused me. I'm not saying it's great literature. It was funny.
0: Overall, where would you have placed this story in Gene Wolfe's works?
1: Oh, you mean like-
0: Like how would you, do you think this is one of his better ones? Do you think this is not- Oh, I
1: don't even know if I can begin to do that. I like how it's crafted and how it's constructed. Mm -hmm. It is, like a lot of Gene Wolfe, the kind of work that rewards closer attention yeah. Um. But even uh, the first time I read it, the the first read through, it was it was charming mm-hmm. in its way. I'm more put off by the 87 year old woman <laughs> marrying the kid that used to be her student. Which maybe this is just the retired teacher in me, but <laughs> I'm more put off by that than the Sphinx sex scene. That's not even really a sex scene. Yeah. And so, and I'm not even really put off by that. It feels clever and earned in the context. And I don't know that I would have fully appreciated that without all of the work you did reading a hundred pages of John Haywood. (laughs) Um, So thank you for that effort.
0: Yeah, you're welcome.
1: Well, and listeners now don't have to wade through Haywood themselves, but they do have to know that the epigraph is always important.
0: That is true. The other thing too, I'd mention there is with the epigraph, it's sometimes the context around the epigraph. The actual quote itself isn't the thing that always illuminates the story. Right. So.
1: Right. Yeah. A woman having nine lives like a cat is not particularly telling, but the context of the marriage advice, very telling. Yeah.
0: Yeah. When I I read it, um, I've read it multiple times over trying to think it was it was collected in. Starwater, Strings, Starwater right? Strains, Strains, okay. yeah. And so I originally had read it in that collection when I bought it a couple years ago after it came out. And so I don't know how many times I've read it, but it's certainly grown on me in this last time reading through it for this uh, recording. I was in love with the story, but also very annoyed at the way that felt like in springtime, it's like, oh, look, the crocuses are blooming. And then, oh, now the crocuses are gone and it's the tulips. And then it's the next thing and the next thing. And it's just like, I don't know how I can condense this down and talk about even all the stuff that I think is important. And then right. I just question how much in there that I missed or right. maybe you missed in your reading. And I, oh, there's, yeah. there's just, there's a lot of... Uh, A lot of. I've never put a
1: Gene Wolfe story down and felt like I had sampled all of the the angles from which I could approach it or uh, understood all of the dimensions of it. But this again, I I don't want to keep returning to Tolkien too much, but since we just read that collection about him, that that's one of the things that marks out greatness and. Again, Mm -hmm. I don't see Wolf as like, I'm going to construct a puzzle no one will ever figure out. I see Wolf living in such a rich, interconnected universe and just more sensitive to it than the average person and therefore capable of embodying that complexity Mm -hmm. that... Um, that richness of reference and layer of meaning in he can reproduce that in a story, yeah. but I think it's only because he he lived in that awareness that you know the, the things that he saw and did and felt were all flowing in and out of one another.
0: Yeah no, i I agree with that, and I can't add anything to that. so all
1: right, so shall we call it? Yes. The unreliable narrators are Amanda Patchen and Brent Towle. And as Gene Wolfe said, reality is a crutch for people who can't handle science fiction.